Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. So we've got Eric Wolken in his studio being interviewed by the other host. I don't know if I'm the co-host or if we are both hosts. What are we're we're I don't know. <laughs> we're in Eric's studio. It's hot outside. And the air conditioner's off so we can hear everything. And uh And it's gonna get hot in here pretty soon. Oh, just about wait till you start talking. Yeah, it's gonna get hot. Spouting all that crazy woodworking knowledge. Oh yeah. <laughs> Come on, sound more enthusiastic. Well, I mean, you know, I don't exactly think I'm a I'm a font of woodworking knowledge. I, I I've always considered myself sort of a brutalist. Are you a lamination of woodworking knowledge? A lamination. I like that. A lamination, <laughs> meaning it's many different ideas glued together. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and uh, well, you know, with every lamination, there's a delamination. Oh. <laughs> Well, let's let's not come apart during this. Yeah, this, let's, uh, let's, let's 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 keep it together. We'll try to. Well, glad I finally got you in here, Eric. It's been a few months since we did the interview with me. More than that, man. Yeah, I think that that was the that was that was uh, that was podcast one. It was like six months ago. The beginnings. Yeah, no, it was back in November, November of uh, 2018. Golly. So uh, done on an iPhone. <laughs> it actually worked pretty well. Yeah, it did. And now we're up to this this giant iPhone. I can't even hold this thing up to my head. I know we won't we won't do uh, we won't do uh, product placement here. We won't say the name of uh, our equipment. Nope, can't do that. That's we're anti capitalist here at Why Make. Yes, except for our stickers coming coming to a uh, a bumper near you. Just watch. Don't run into them, please. Although they are vinyl, so they'll su- probably survive a wreck. They probably will. Okay. So should we talk about woodworking? We should. Or we should talk about all things related to making. Well, that's what we're here for. Not a tool talk. Not a tool talk. Exactly. All right. So, are... so Eric. Eric Wolken. My uh, brother from another mother. Yeah. Let's get started, man. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My dad was a uh, professor at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University. Steel City. So I grew up in I grew up in the university neighborhood. I grew up in Shady Side, which uh, pretty much looks like every university town you've ever seen. Green and lush with sidewalks and big houses and yeah. And and a you know and a little shopping area full of uh, hoity-toity shops and. And even back in the day, there were coffee shops back then. They don't. They, they had don't, co- they had coffee back then. They had coffee back uh, then. And, uh, interestingly enough, coffee's been around for a while. Oh, okay, okay, wow. Learn something new every day. Okay, so Pittsburgh, and so you went to to high school and then started college up in that area too. I did. Uh, I went to high school in the city, and then. I moved an astonishing 70 miles south to Morgantown, West Virginia. Cool. We're jumping ahead. Let's not jump so far. Okay. So we're, so doing, you know, going to high school, was there any kind of creative bug that started creeping in? Like, were you raised around art, raised around something that kind of, you know, made you want to start working with your hands? Like, where did that, where did that start to manifest itself? 
Well, I was raised around art because my older sister, who's like 15 years older than me. Um, What's her name? Her name is Anne, Anne Wolken. She lives in uh, Venice, California. She was a painter, so she's 15 years older than me. So obviously, you know, by the time I was six, she was out of the house. Okay. But I do have distinct memories of her setting up her painting studio uh, in our garage. Um, so I remember that. And um, my brother was a musician and a dancer, and he was... Um, 12 years older than me, so I have distinct memories of that as well. Um, What's your brother's, what was your brother's name? My brother's name was Jonathan, Jonathan Wolken. So, okay. um, so there was plenty of, of inspiration as a, uh, as a kid in the art realm. I mean, my mom was a fiber artist. Oh, wow. She, she had been a, she was a special ed teacher, and she gave that up when I was in high school and started doing fiber art. She actually took a correspondence course in fiber art. You know, back then she got lessons in the mail. And no you, know, you, complete each, you complete each lesson and you mail it back. And, and she loved it. That's so, cool. Um, kind of get a grade or a critique from the teacher or the group that I, accepts I it. I guess I'm not quite exactly sure how that worked. <laughs> That's kind of neat. Uh, you know... So I was around it a lot. Yeah. I was around it. I grew up, uh, you know, listening to my brother play banjo um, in the room next door. Um, you know, he was, uh, he ultimately came a, a professional choreographer and dancer, but he did quite a bit, quite a bit of dance when he was in high school. And again, I was six or seven or eight. So, so you, you were just seeing it, you know, them coming home and doing that painting and dancing and kind of all in your like oh my older brother and sister they're doing this crazy stuff right well and, and the other thing too is is that my dad who was a biologist he was uh he was a biophysicist as i said at carnegie mellon university and he had the most incredible lab in the world he had this huge lab um that had its own machine shop and oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he had his lab tech oliver Jay Basher or Oliver Basher, I can't remember. It was Ollie. And Ollie was just an incredibly talented guy. He, you know, my dad did lots of experiments in the lab and Ollie built all of the, all of the apparatus for the experiments um, in the machine great. shop in the lab. So he was and, like the facilitator of, of your dad's ideas. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure I can't remember the names of all the little apparatuses Ollie built. But, you know, Ollie could do anything. I mean, I remember, you know, um, at one point in time, I was really fascinated with machines. And um, I was reading about steam engines. So I went into the lab, and Ollie and I built a steam engine. Well, Ollie built a steam engine. I yeah. watched. But, I mean, I got to see it. You know, he took a, you know... He, took an old can and he uh, soldered a nozzle onto it. We filled the can with water and uh, put a Bunsen burner underneath it. And the, the water heated up and a jet of steam came out of the nozzle. And That's we made, great. <laughs> we, took a, we took a piece of aluminum and turned it into a pinwheel with veins and mounted it on a little stand in front of the jet nozzle. And, and, and we had this amazing, fun little toy. And so we, I take it your dad took you to work often? Or you, 
but often enough to be able to experience that? You know, it was an interesting experience because my dad was so not a parent. I mean, of that <laughs> that generation of people, it was the you know, it was uh, what's the best way to say it? He was a very hands off parent. He oh, did okay. almost yeah. no parenting. Right. But in the to an extent, he did let me run around his lab, which he did a lot as a child. Mm -hmm. And and really, in a sense, Ollie was my parent when I was in the lab. You know, I mean, my dad completely ignored me, and I ran around with Ollie. That's, but uh, that's cool, you know. So, so, what what age were you when you were doing that? You mentioned oh, six, probably or? six through ten. Oh, cool. So, uh, at some point, um, Carnegie Mellon made my dad move out of the big fancy labs mm -hmm. and into a much smaller space, and he could no longer, uh, you know, he could no longer keep Ollie on, and no longer needed a lab tech because I mean, his lab had gone from thousands of square feet to hundreds of square feet, yeah. wow. and. Um, so there wasn't that, but you know, I, I mean, I remember, uh, I was a pretty avidly into sports as a kid mm -hmm. and, um, I, you know, I had a sports illustrated subscription and I just started drawing out of the, you know, I started copying images of athletes out of, uh, oh, cool. out of like sports illustrated. Figure drawing the athletes. Yeah. Figure drawing, figure drawing the athletes out of sports illustrated and you know other other wacky things i mean um you know i remember also in that period six to ten you know making spaceships out of old refrigerator boxes oh yeah that's and great. <laughs> you know that kind of thing um but so so that seems to have i mean that kind of there's a light inside of you you know you're just you're eager about seeing that stuff being in your dad's lab and stuff is kind of giving you ideas. So, so now that the lab's gone, like, w did you feel like uh, I want to draw more? Or I want to do this. Like, how did that kind of continue? So it, it, it actually didn't. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I continued to draw, um, but the seed was planted. It sounds the like. seed, the seed was planted. I continued to draw, you know, probably through you know 14 15 at some point i just stopped drawing yeah um you know i you started was, running right i started running right so i was gonna say you know like most teenage kids i really got into sports i really got into baseball and then i became a long distance runner and i got into the whole loneliness of the long distance runner thing and then you know at that point uh i spent most of my time running when i wasn't uh when i wasn't in school i was out running Oh, wow. So, and I did that all the way through high school, um, more or less on and off. Um, I did have, I did have a fairly, well, it wasn't an injury. It was a congenital um, condition where uh, I had to have, uh, I had to have a, a cyst removed from below my knee and that stopped me running for about a year. And and it actually during that year when I wasn't able to run sort of pre-surgery and post-surgery and healing up, uh, I cooked a lot, uh, with my mom. My mom was an excellent cook and you know, I was, I wasn't real mobile, so I couldn't run. So that whole period, you know, my mom and I started making pizza, we, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> the whole 10 yards, pizza, nice. we started making pizza. We put it put pizza bricks in the ovens and we started, you know, we, we brought out the, uh, the Julia Child's cookbook and cool. we made our own dough and we started making bread and we made croissants wow. and, uh, 
this is all sort of interesting because, um, you know, I just spent the the last 10 days with my mom who's in real failing health and, you know, dementia has taken the better part of her brain, but she still remembers, you know, she still has those long-term memories. So those are the things we can discuss. And uh, we've been talking a lot about, you know, those years where we cooked together in the kitchen. And that that one year, I guess I was a junior in high school where I, I, I couldn't run. Um, okay. So you're like 16 or 17 years old. Yeah. And I just cooked a lot. Yeah. And then, wow, that sounds like some good memories. Yeah. So, so you're, uh, finishing up high school and like, what the heck am I going to do? Well, I mean, or did you know, you're like, I want to do Oh, this. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I uh, <laughs> I really, I thought I wanted to go into environmental studies and go to the University of Michigan like my sister went. But truth be told, I was a pretty shitty student. Um, so I didn't have a lot of options <laughs> in terms of where I was going to go to school. And, uh, and I really did want to get the hell out of Pittsburgh. It's kind of interesting. Most of, my, most of my friends' kids have oddly stuck around home, whereas... Uh, my parents had a pretty toxic relationship, so getting away was uh, getting away was fairly important. That was a good thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I only I only managed seventy miles, but seventy miles yeah, was far enough. I mean, that's pretty much the distance from Pittsburgh to Morgantown. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Hour and ten minutes, door to door. Yep. Pretty much. So, um, well, so you went to WVU first after high school. I did. Yeah. Okay. Well, talk about what you did at WVU, and now was there there was there any woodworking that kind of nah. well? Um, so um, I was it was a, geography, right? I was a geography major, so um, so I was at WVU for a year. That first year, I I you know I took some basic geography classes, and then I was you know I was a really good student my first year, so I had good enough grades to transfer out. And I transferred out to the University of Michigan to the School of Environmental Studies where my sister had gone. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent one semester there and it was enough. I mean, (laughs) it uh, it was just insane. I mean, WVU, Party School USA, whatever you want to say about it, it, it felt like home and Ann Arbor never felt like home. WVU was pretty small back then. I mean, small in the sense of big state U. It was probably only, yeah. probably only what, twelve to fifteen thousand students max. It's probably well over thirty now. Yeah, I think it's twenty five or thirty now. Right, but University of Michigan was fifty. Fifty thousand students. Wow, that's, it was just that's insane. Huge. To me, yeah. that's huge. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> it was huge. I mean, in the School of Environmental Sciences or the School of Natural Resources, I can't remember exactly what it was called. It doesn't exist anymore, because mm-hmm. actually, right after I left, they uh, they, end, they they put the school back into the biology department. So I was only there one semester. It was, you know, leave, you know, leave home so you can miss home, I guess, idea. So I went, I went right back to uh, WVU um, and completed my undergraduate degree in geography. Nice. And, um, I guess my first sort of getting back into doing sort of creative stuff was I really got into making maps. There was a, there was a good cartography program at WVU. Um, even though I, I didn't, 
it was not my specialization in geography, but I took a lot of map making classes just because I enjoyed doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, that, oddly enough, was my first woodworking because... Oh, uh, cool. Um, to make maps, I needed a drafting table. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I had no money, and the, the, I, I had no money, and even if I had had money, I, I, there's no way, I had no car, I had no way to go get a drafting table, so I just, uh, there was some scrap lumber lying around town, and, lying around my house, and um, an old piece of plywood and stuff, and, you know, I went to the hardware store in town, got some nuts and bolts, and I made myself a drafting table, and then I found some old uh, grape crates at the uh, food co-op and I turned the grape crates the grape crates and some two by fours into some more into a, actually a little uh, dresser and That's those cool. were those were my that was the beginning of my woodworking career was <laughs> uh, creating the uh, the table I needed to take map making classes That's cool that sounds kind of like the stuff that I did building stuff out of two by twelves just utilitarian necessary to make things happen yeah i mean so, I do, you know the most basic of basic tools yeah i mean mostly hand tools so your cartographies kind of got you um did you were you wasn't there a cool map store in morgantown you know i don't remember a cool map store in morgantown um huh. what about uh what about Monchateau? Oh, now, Mont Chateau, interestingly enough. So explain Mont Chateau. Right, yeah. yeah. So Mont Chateau, back in the day, was, uh, was a resort. It was a hotel. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm older than you. I know you are. <laughs> so like a lot, so Mont Chateau, a lot, right? So to explain, so Mont Chateau was a resort um, on Cheat Lake, which is a man-made lake right outside of Morgantown, West Virginia, um, it was where we all hung out and partied Beautiful and got life. stoned and, uh, as later on in life, but, uh, right, right. as a kid, we used to go to Mont Chateau cause my sister used to go to, uh, she used to go to what a, you know, overnight camp and whatever you call it. Yeah. She went to, I think it was camp Linwood. I can't remember, but it was on the backwaters of the cheat. So there was a yeah. camp, there was a camp on the backwaters of the cheat. My sister used to go there. So we used to take my sister down to camp, and then we used to stay at Mont Chateau. But uh, later, Mont Chateau became uh, the West Virginia Geologic Survey, or was it the U.S. Geological Survey? I can't remember. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's cool. It was beautiful out there. It was definitely beautiful out there, and there were definitely lots of maps there. I did get into map making um, after college. But it wasn't it wasn't uh, topographic maps. It, they weren't or geologic maps. Actually, my undergraduate advisor in college, Ken Martis, hopefully you're still around, Ken, um, was a political geographer, and he was doing political maps. Oh, he like was doing gerrymandering and stuff like that. Well, or? actually, so his first big project was, and this was for, God, this was for I think for the 200th Congress was he mapped the boundaries of every congressional district in the United States for, the, for all 200 Congresses. Oh my and um, so you could see gerrymandering. You yeah, could see the yeah. roots of gerrymandering. And I did a, I did a little bit on that project. Okay. Um, you know, obviously lots of research involved and not that much map making. Yeah. But uh, 
I later worked for him on his next project. So the first project, drawing all the congressional districts, um, set the stage for the second project, which was the history of everybody that had served in those districts. So we'd, we got the name and political party of everybody that served in those districts. So um, I helped do the research on that, and I actually helped to make those maps for publication. Wow. So that was, that was like the first major project I did after college. A lot of hand-eye coordination and stuff like that, or I mean, for the actual map making, or well, so back then, map making was basic graphic arts. Mm -hmm. So you would, uh, you know, we would actually scribe the maps literally. I mean, yeah. we take uh, it was called peel coat, which was just a it was a film that you would scribe with a with a. I mean, a scribe is just a, a basically a pencil that has a very fine chisel point on it, and you would draw you would draw the lines. And sometimes we would project the lines onto the peel coat. Um, sometimes we would um, expose the lines onto the peel coat in a photographic process, and then follow the lines. Uh, and there was uh, there was like dozens of different scribing tools. It was really it was a fine art because wow. before. You know, before everything went digital, I mean, this is, what is this? This is 1985, 86. Before everything went digital, um, map making was an art. And so part of the production of the maps for this book were, was done in Lexington, Kentucky, under this master Hungarian map maker. And I completely blank on his name, but I went to I went to Lexington for six months and just studied under him, wow. and and made these maps and you know just to see the the amount of hand eye coordination to draw these very precise squiggly lines in peel coat, and then you know you expose it into you know the next sounds, the next layer and then you start. And then, of course, you know, we had to peel out all the districts that were Republican, expose those onto a master sheet, and then peel <laughs> out. And, of course, at some point, there were many different parties, and, and then everything had to be proofed. So, I mean, what, what is an interesting skill, like a lot of things, after six, eight months of doing it, becomes tedium, and you also go blind. Um, and then, of course, there was the – my favorite part of the whole project, and I say this facetiously, was – so we had – the names of everybody that had served in the first U.S. Congress, all congressmen, the senators, and we got the, the galley proofs back from the publisher, and we had to spell check every single name. There were, I say 10,000, there might have been 10,100, but there were 10,000 names that needed to be spell checked. Oh, wow. And that was my job. And I had to <laughs> spell check 10,000 names, you know, names like, you know, I mean, uh, Abacus. Finch the third and you know all these all these you know and you couldn't just look at it and make sure it was spelled right you had to go to reference to make well sure. actually I had the master list of everything spelled right so, <laughs> so you I, had to check so everything I had to oh check it all God. so I would uh, you know I had this office in the uh, in the basement of, of Whitehall of the geography geog yeah. geology and geography building and I would do like 20 names I would take a lap around the building get a uh, a horrible cup of that machine coffee remember the coffee machine in the library in the basement of the library Ugh. you know where you put a quarter in the machine and the and the uh 
and the cup comes down the chute, and you get that first, you get that slug of black sludge, Those are so and then awful. the and then the hot water. And uh, I would do like ten cups of that a day. It was just like so hard to keep my eyes open. It took me like two months to proofread all ten thousand names, and it was like keeping my eyes pried open was just like an utter. It was it was a challenge beyond belief. It was so hard. So the the gross coffee got you through, huh? Well, right. And then of course you know that that project ended, and um, and that's 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 when the big what's next thing came. So what's next, Eric Wolken? <laughs> what's what's next? So you're about what twenty one, twenty two. Oh no, I this, I, this I moved on a little further. No, I'm I'm much older than that at that point. So I graduated I graduated when I was like 23. I was on the five and a half year plan. Oh right, yeah. Uh, I graduated when I was 23. Um, my first job out of college was I worked at uh, the food co-op, Mountain People's Food Co-op, which is still there and still exists. I worked at Mountain People's Food Co-op for like three years. So I am. Um, I'm 26, and then I worked, well, no, hold it. I worked there for two years. I'm like 25, and then, then I worked for, then I had the, the map-making job for, uh, for WVU, for working for my uh, ex-undergraduate uh, advisor, Ken Martis. So I did that till I was about 28, and then I was clueless what was next. I mean, I... That's uh, when I became clueless, too. Oh, wait, I was like that the whole time, but 28... Yes. When so, I decided to go explore further. So you're at that point now. I'm at that point now. And um, my mom had suggested that since I had made a few things in wood, maybe I should take a class or two. So because I was at WVU, because I, I was now an officially a, a resident of West Virginia and had been for a while, I took a couple of sculpture classes at WVU. Oh, cool. So like, I did that. Like and 3D the, sculpture or clay or? Actually, I really got into, uh, into, uh, into metal sculpture. Oh, cool. The couple sculptures I made learned were. Learned how to weld. and I learned how to weld. I learned, uh, you know, I learned how to use a cutting torch and nice. the MIG. Cool. And I, so I did a couple sculptures. So I think I took, took one or two sculpture classes. I really enjoyed it. And, um, I did that while I was also working for the, working for the geography department. And, um, and then my job ends and my mom suggests that I take a class. It was, oh, there was a, oh God, I can't remember the name of the place, but there was like one of, one of these little small summer craft programs, not Penland. It was sort of, uh, it was called like New Horizons or something like that. It was in, it was just outside of Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, I took a very basic furniture making class there, and I really enjoyed it. And um, you remember what you made? I do remember what I made. It was it was very so we basically made. We all made the same stool, yeah. and we all used the same process. It was cool. all out of two-by-fours. It got stained in the end. The seat was built out of machine cane with a spline. <laughs> so cool. uh, it was very basic, but it was, a, it was a wonderful introduction. It was like a one-week class. Yeah. 
And then I went back later and I did a class in, I was in like twig furniture, you know, basically, uh, you know, taking green twigs and making very basic tables and chairs. And I did that. Riving them and splitting them and stuff. And yeah, um, it it was really super basic though. I mean, so I did that. I think I did both those classes in the same summer. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was a year apart. I mean, obviously my memories of all that are a little foggy, but it was all in around the same period of time. But I really enjoyed that, and um, and I was just doing odd jobs in town. You know, I was doing carpentry jobs and anything I could get my hands on. But you know, I was pretty. I was casting about for what's next, and then yeah. you know, my mom m- made the suggestion really that changed my life. Um, there was a professor at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. You heard it right, yep. Indiana University. Of Pennsylvania. It's a real place. It's a real place. <laughs> they actually have a wonderful art department. So my mom introduced me to uh, Chris Weiland, who was the professor in the in the woodworking and furniture design program at Indiana University, Pennsylvania. And he was on a six-month sabbatical teaching at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. They had just opened up a little wood studio. Oh, in the Pittsburgh- what year was this? God, I want to go 1990. Okay. So... I could be off on that. Accuracy not required. <laughs> nope. Um, so, um, so I went up to Pittsburgh, traveled the 70 miles, and I met, with, I met with Chris, and he really encouraged me to become a graduate student at IUP in, a, in his furniture design program. That's great. And um, I pulled up roots in Morgantown, which was pretty traumatic because I'd lived there since 78, 79. Oh Wow. And, years. and I went, I mean, not that IUP was that far away. I mean, IUP is just a little bit uh, east of Pittsburgh. So it was, you know, still just about 70 miles away. An hour and 10 minutes away. But I moved to Indiana, Pennsylvania. And um, I was in that program for six months. And Chris took another sabbatical. <laughs> and... Uh, and this time he was gone for a year, and I didn't want to stay there by myself, although he would have loved it if I did. Um, I learned a lot in that. Talk, talk in, about some of it. What, what did you learn that really, that really pushed you to keep on doing it? I mean, was there anything remarkable that you were just like, wow, moments? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if there was that moment, but I, I just... I just loved being around art and I loved being around wood mm-hmm. and it just sounds really like trite and corny to say it, but no, it doesn't. Man, just, I mean, the, just that, the smell of being in a wood shop that's was mind blowing. That's why a lot of us are in it because we really like being around it. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I think ever since I cut that first two by four, mm-hmm. I was just like super addicted to the smell of wood. I mean, what's your, what, what's your favorite wood? What, what's your favorite smelling wood out of all the stuff you cut, everything you've ever worked with? Oh God, I don't know. Cherry's up there. Okay. Um, I'm, interestingly enough, I can tell woods more by their smell yeah. sometimes yeah. than yeah. by their look. Yeah, so can I. And I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't identify any trees in the wild. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm remarkably bad at that too. Yeah. I keep on saying, I've got to learn that. I've got, I've got three books on it and I'm, 
No, the only thing, actually interesting, and another piece of, uh, as we digress, a, a piece of West Virginia folklore, um, there was this uh, infamous um, Morgantown character, Joey Gatsky, no longer alive. Did you ever know Joey? I did not. Uh, Joey was a musician, painter, artist, alcoholic, had a pretty tragic life, but he was, uh, you know, he took me on my first experience with ramps, if you remember ramps. Oh, yes. Yes. Smelly, smelly, smelly. Right. He took me, he took me into... Explain what ramps are real quick for those that might not know. So ramps are something characteristic to most of West Virginia and maybe Western North Carolina. I'm going to blow this one because I can't remember whether they're related to garlic or onions or maybe neither. But they are a very pungent garlic-like. They kind of look like green onions. Mm -hmm. You almost always find them in steep creek and river valleys um, in April. In a lot of West Virginia in April, they have ramp festivals yep. where ramps yeah. get put into everything. Um, ramps raw are like eating raw garlic. They're intense as hell. And anybody that's been eating ramps, if you're not eating ramps, you don't want to be around them. Um, <laughs> they lose some of their intensity when you cook them. Not much, though. <laughs> not much. So like everywhere in April... Um, you can tell who's eating ramps. <laughs> you can be telling who's eating ramps. And there's ramp festivals all over the place. I remember there was a big ramp festival in Kingwood we used to go to. Yeah. I can't um, But so Joey would take me ramping. Um, he also took me sanging, as in gin sanging, looking for ginseng. <laughs> um, we never found any, but I mean, you know, and in, in, in most cases it was just an excuse for me to get alcohol for him. Because he didn't drive, so right. but he was a one. So we digress. But so Joey once asked me, and this was long before I was a woodworker, if I could tell the difference between a red oak and a white oak. And of course, yeah. dumbass city kid, I had no idea. And he said something that I forever remembered, which is the way you can tell a red oak from a white oak is you look at the leaves, and the red oak is pointed. The leaves are on a red oak are pointed like a red man's arrows, like an Indian's arrows. And the leaves on a white oak are rounded like the white man's bullets. And for some reason of all the shit that's stuck in my head, that's <laughs> stuck in my head. So if I know I'm looking at an oak, which I don't always know, yeah. I sort of know what an oak, a, a, like a red oak and a white oak leaf look like. I can tell the difference. So cherry's your favorite one. In terms of smell. But yeah, so I mean, I think I got addicted to being in a, in a wood shop in a, in a and around wood, and um, I mean, I went through some real. I mean, that that one semester I I spent at um, at IUP, I went through some real. I went through a real learning curve in terms of process. Um, I had some, you know, I'd taken a couple of workshops, so I had some very rudimentary woodworking skills, yeah. but I learned actual techniques. Um, so you really got started digging deep into like learning how to do it. I actually, so I learned actual skills. So yeah. there's the beginning of actually learning techniques. But, you know, the design component was a big part of that program. Yeah. Yeah. And there were many other students in that program. And really to that point, my only exposure to furniture design had been the shakers. Mm -hmm. So I, I really thought that... Um, so this cracked it open for you? This cracked it open for me, but I was really resistant to it. 
because I, at that point, I don't think I really saw furniture as art. I think I, oh, I, I think okay. I saw it. I think I saw it purely as craft, mm-hmm. and you know, craft was about perfection and about, you know, I don't think I ever really liked, you know classical woodworking pieces, you know, Renaissance pieces or federal pieces. Victorian kind of role. Yeah, or Victorian pieces because I've never really liked... I've always been a minimalist in that sense. But at when I was in the, in the program at IUP, I think I firmly believed that shaker furniture was the only kind of furniture there was. And, um, I mean, it's pretty minimalist, very functional stuff. Yeah. I mean, if, if ever there was you know, something that fit the bill of form, you know, form meets function, function meets form. Yeah. It was the shaker furniture. So this cracked that facade. It cracked it, but I fought it. I fought it. <laughs> I mean, I, there were other students in the program that were building, piece, building pieces out of, uh, you know, painted plywood, um, often that were odd shapes and not functional mm-hmm. and... You know, there was there was many uh, many discussions, many loud discussions on really what the hell is that? I mean, <laughs> really? So that started to push a lot of edges, and and I your own edges, your own creative. Oh, my edges, own edges. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I started to see furniture design as something much more broader than than just very simple stuff, and also I had. No, I had to learn some sketching skills. I mean, yeah. my my sketching skills back from my day of copying pictures out of uh, Sports Illustrated really <laughs> didn't serve me well here. I had to learn how to do some drawing in perspective. Uh, I mean, I still don't draw well, but uh, I draw well enough to suit my needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but also the process, you know, the, the the whole process of design. I don't think I'd ever really thought about. How do you go from here to? Right. I mean, the, the whole idea of um, and Chris was really good at that. I mean, that whole that whole sort of research phase of of design. So you have some rough sketches, and where do you go with those? I mean, how do you refine that? And, and, you know, we had to, you know, we had to create books of details, you know, how do you treat that surface? Chris was big on, he was, Chris Weiland, that is my professor, was, was big on, so here's this big block of an idea, but how does this surface relate to this surface? How does this surface meet this surface? Is it offset? So that a piece is really just a big, it's problem solving. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I... I really understood problem solving because I, you know, I, I grew up in a lab, my dad's lab, and science is just pure problem solving. Mm-hmm. I mean, art is just basically the scientific method yeah. in a different form. Yeah. So well, Chris was helping you be able to relate all those things together to have a, make a cohesive piece. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's the whole idea. I mean, you know, obviously at its, at its minimum, a table is nothing other than four legs, some aprons holding it together, and a top. Yeah. But that isn't really a. That's not a. That's not a well formulated idea. That is. I mean, it's a necessarily functional piece, but it doesn't. You know, that's not what I was in school to learn, or at least that's not what he thought. I mean, I might have thought that originally because a lot of the Shaker furniture was that. I he mean, was. He wanted to upset that whole pattern of thought. Well, I mean, or yeah. Form it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, how do the aprons meet the legs? I mean, what are the surfaces? What are the textures? What are the colors? What are the, you know, is the... And, and that was the beginning of all that. I can't say that I broke out of my mold. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was only there six months. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't get a chance to do that. But, um, you know, so after six months, I left and and went to Haywood, went to Haywood Community College and then spent a year there under Rain, Wayne Rapp. So in Haywood Community College, we've talked to to Wayne and Brian, the current professor yeah. at Haywood. Haywood's in Clyde, North Carolina, the, the professional uh, crafts woodworking program, amongst other programs. So you started going there. And uh, I started going there, right? And you went there 15 years after me. That's a, another interesting pretty, piece of our shared much, history. Yeah. Only you graduated. I did not. That's okay. I'll, I'll, you won't hold it over me. No, I won't. Um, but no, I mean, Wayne, actually, interestingly enough, well, Wayne, maybe it depends. No, no, I'm just kidding. Wayne Rabb shared a very similar background to Chris Weiland. They both, within a year or two of each other, graduated from the Rochester Institute of Technology and studied under, what, it was Tate, wasn't it? Tate Frid? Tate Frid and Doug Sigler. And Doug Sigler, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, Wayne had a lot to teach me. I mean, obviously, the the program at Haywood was structured a little bit differently than the IUP program. Um, it was much more structured in the sense that, you know, you started off learning some basic hand skills. Yeah. And we had a separate design instructor, Bob Gibson, who yeah. was amazing. Quite, quite the comprehensive, abbreviated education at Haywood. Really. Yes, it was. But, I mean... You know, I think the, the wonderful thing about my combination of Haywood and IUP is, is that I got exposed to a lot of different things in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. I learned an amazing amount of just skills and techniques in a very short period of time. And school isn't necessarily for everybody, and academic programs like RIT, where you get master's degrees, aren't necessarily for everybody. But I, I think the beauty is that in a very short period of time, you learn an incredible amount. And, you know, on my own, maybe I could have learned all of that in a 10-year period. Yeah. I almost felt like all of a sudden when I graduated, I was a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And I yeah. had everywhere that I could go. And I, you know, ended up choosing a, a, a two or three or four different directions before I really got into like a finite thing. I mean, I, I felt that was really the benefit of Haywood because yeah, it just taught you way more than you needed to know, but then you could figure it out. Right. I mean, I, I, I think it was a, it was a very utilitarian program in that I think it sets you up oh, man. really well to go out and become a professional afterwards. Now, not every, I mean, and the other thing was, is that some of us did go out and become professionals and some of us were always just hobbyists. And there was a real interesting group of people that went there. Um, I left after a year because I thought I had gotten all the information that I needed. I didn't really see the point in having an associate's degree. Um, and also I was broke. <laughs> well, yeah, a couple of things. I was, I, was, I was 30 years old. I was broke. Um, and I got offered a job in a cabinet shop in Chapel Hill. So, so you moved to Chapel Hill. I moved to Chapel Hill and I took a job in a cabinet shop. 
um, Woodpecker Enterprises in Apex, <laughs> North Carolina, which is basically Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that was another education. It was, uh, you know, it was uh, not the funnest education in the world, but and, and we did do some interesting work there. I mean, it wasn't just strictly a cabinet shop. We did a lot of high-end commercial work in the sense that we built, uh, you know, we built custom offices for IBM and for some of the other big uh, tech and telecom companies in Research Triangle Park. Oh, cool. So yeah. we did do some. We did do some fun custom work. You had to be focused and fast. Yeah. And you weren't well paid. I mean, I, so I think I started at Woodpecker Enterprises in 1991, making 750 an hour, which, you know, at that point, I was a somewhat skilled woodworker. I mean, I had a, a fair amount of technique, but 750 an hour, you started. And I was there for four or five years, and I topped out at $10 an hour. Yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty meager existence. We got uh, no benefits and one, and I think there were three paid holidays a year. There was, uh, <laughs> there was Christmas, there was Christmas, July Fourth, and your birthday, which was a nice touch. You got your birthday as a paid holiday, so um, keep it coming back. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was like I said, it was an education of a different side. I mean, it was like, uh, I mean. You know, in the biz, it's called box banging, but yeah. uh, learning how to become really fast is not something you learn in a college program. No, no, uh, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, the techniques aren't pretty. It's nails and screws, but, uh, you know, not for the high-minded, but it gets the job done. And like I said, we did some pretty good work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I probably stayed there three or four years longer than I should have just because again, you know, I reached another point where I was scared what was next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't, maybe had I stayed at Haywood, I would have gotten the, uh, the confidence to go out on my own and do my own thing as it was. Uh, it took me, it took me three or four years in a, on a really bad breakup. <laughs> to get that confidence like like you know i'm out of here yeah uh, you know i can't i can't do this anymore and uh i will say that um my boss at woodpecker my boss in the shop foreman at woodpecker were were great folks i mean that'll keep you out of job that's for sure yeah so i mean that'll when help. i when i finally made the decision to leave I talked with the shop foreman about laying me off so that I could collect unemployment benefits until I could actually get it together. <laughs> and they very nicely did it for me. I mean, they were going through a slow period of time and they allowed me to collect unemployment. And then I was able to make that transition in, you know, in 1994, 95, something like that to uh, finally having, figuring out how to have my own shop, which actually wasn't my own shop. I figured out so it was a co-op uh, co shop that you dropped into? Well, it wasn't an intentional co-op shop. I, ah, I dropped okay. into a shop with two other woodworkers. I mean, I, I think at times we tried to call it a co-op, but uh, it was uh, it lacked a degree of cooperation. <laughs> we basically worked around each other and shared tools. 
Oh, and, I got you. Okay. And yelled at each other when you use the tools like you shouldn't. That kind of thing. Oh, yeah, we don't need to get into the details of that, but uh, I I did that for a yeah I did that for like another twelve fourteen years and and that uh, was also in Chapel Hill or it, out it, that way it was it started out in Alamance County um, out you know about ten miles out of Chapel Hill and then we moved uh, then the shop moved into Chapel Hill not into directly into Chapel Hill but just outside of just outside of Carborough um, which is right next to Chapel Hill. So, um, so you're banging boxes together and you're wanting to do more, obviously, because you quit that job. So what, what inside of you, I mean, were you just like, I got to make more, I want to do more woodworking. Like I was learning in school or, um, was there some, something there that, that was pushing you, uh, I mean, to get away from the banging the boxes? Like, did you have stuff in your head you wanted to build? I think I always had stuff in my head I wanted to build, and one thing about Woodpecker was I was allowed in the shop on the weekends to do my own projects, and I did do that. Um, so I didn't do a lot of that, but I mean, I think I think the thing that's been with me this this since I was a little kid is I've always had ideas in my head. Yeah. And, oh, and the, the big challenge has been figuring out how to get them out of my head. So, I mean, it, you know, I've always been a restless soul and at no point doing anything am I happy with it. The other thing. <laughs> I feel like I'm looking in a mirror here. Yeah, I mean, I've never been happy with <laughs> totally what I've never been happy with what I've done. So I've always I've always somehow had to figure out how to get some of the ideas out of my head and whether it be on paper or actually being made. So while I was a woodpecker, I did a couple of, I did a couple of fun art projects. Uh, um, I even sold a couple pieces. Um, they were all sort of semi-functional. I, I th think as, as I left, um, as I left Haywood and entered into the cabinet shop world, I became more and more interested in that line between functional and non-functional items. I don't think I'd admit to myself back then that I was really interested more in sculpture than I was in furniture because yeah. it, would, it would take me another 15 years before I could actually leave the furniture world and start exploring pure sculpture. But it's, you know, once I was banging boxes and sticking plastic laminate every day, I sort of was really intrigued by, what if I just build shit that doesn't do anything? Yeah. And, and again, you know, the interesting thing is, is that my whole training to this point had been in building functional objects. Yeah. I mean, I, even though we went to, I don't know whether you want to call Haywood an art program, and I think it's a functional arts program. And IUP was a functional arts program. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I've been I've been always trained to build functional objects, and I was just curious about. Yeah, I think I'd always been curious about could I do sculpture. So and when's the first time that you made something that has no function? When's the first time that you made sculpture? Oh, I don't. I don't think I started doing that until about seven, eight years ago. And again, I had to. I had to. I had to take baby steps there. Yeah. I, you know, I had to, um, I did a show like 10 years ago, maybe it was 12 years ago 
that I was invited by Brent Skidmore, who um, is, I guess he was in, Brent was in Charlotte at that point. He's a pretty well-known furniture maker and artist. He taught at Kendall and Grand Rapids. He taught at Kendall and Grand Rapids, and then I think now he's at... Um, UNCA. UNCA. In and Yeah, in the art department there. I, you know, I didn't really know Brent very well, but I had met him at, uh, I'd met him at a few trade shows. The Phil- I'd met him at the Philadelphia Furniture Show, and actually a lot of people said our work looked similar back then. I, I never quite figured that out. Maybe but, some shapes, but not. Yeah, well, maybe some shapes. But uh, so Brent invited me to be in a show, in a group show at this wonderful gallery in Charlotte. It was called Gallery WDO, which standard stood for well-designed objects. Um, and the guy that owned it was a total character. And I don't even know why Brent uh, invited me to be a part of that show. Cause um, I mean, he barely knew me at that point. I mean, uh, so you were a maker who was making, I was a maker who was making, and I lived in North Carolina. I had been in a handful of small shows, all primarily furniture at that point. Um, all furniture. I hadn't really. So anyways, for that show, I wanted to do something really personal and I wasn't sure what it was. And I was really just sort of casting about for ideas. And I have this wonderful picture of me as a five-year-old playing, uh, walking on the edge of a sandbox in the nursery school. Well, I was just four years old because it was and the nursery school at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm-hmm. I've always had this photo. I've always loved this photo. I sort of, you know, back in the days of youth and innocence where, you know, it was like, here's this cute little, here's this amazingly cute little kid. What the fuck happened to him? I mean, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I'd been looking at this photo and um, I was wondering, well, how does that, how does a functional maker turn that into an idea? And I don't know how. I, I, I just started sketching these things. It started looking like torsos. Mm-hmm. Um, I, hadn't really pl- I, I hadn't played with figurative work at all. I hadn't really thought about doing a pure sculpture piece. And I was looking at this photo, and I was like, well, how do I, how do I merge these two worlds? So... I turned the torso idea into cabinets just because I, I, was, I was afraid to leave the functional world. Somehow it had right. to function. So you kind of straddled it for a little while. I straddled it for a while. And then I took that photo and I put it into Photoshop. And, you know, I, I messed around with it. I did a little mirroring. I, I changed the colors. I'm not a... I'm not a Photoshop pro. <laughs> I just did some really basic rudimentary things with it. And then I printed it onto that, uh, you know, that iron on decal material. Yeah. You know, that stuff. So you could put that. Yeah, you so could do so, transfers. Yeah. So, yeah. so oh, I, um, I ironed it onto some wood. Problematic. Wood does not like to be ironed on. <laughs> so, you, so you were starting to experiment and move away from doing just traditional furniture yeah so I, I made these torsos they were cabinets uh, I applied these images of myself there were three cabinets um, I use I just worked with one image I worked with that one image of myself walking on the sandbox on the edge of the sandbox 
and I just chopped it up and displayed it in, in various different ways. And um, I made these three torso cabinets. Um, they were largely painted, um, so it wasn't about the wood. The cabinets were maple, but the actual torsos themselves were, um, were painted white. Mm -hmm. um, um, and they were mahogany too, which is <laughs> funny. I had uh, I had scored all these old uh, mahogany neck blanks from a, 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 a from a guitar a, from an electric guitar <laughs> from a, a guy that made electric guitars, and he rejected all these neck blanks if they even had a pinhole in them. And uh, I bought them for nothing. And you know, it's when I first started carving, and I was power carving. So it's good, I mean, good wood to carve. Oh, an amazing wood to carve. And then I coated it in like a hundred million coats of, of white water-based lacquer, and everybody remarked, "Is that plastic?" Oh no! <laughs> and it it looked like plastic. I mean, you couldn't tell. I mean, uh, you know, I had to I had obliterated the grain with so many coats of white paint. And uh, so that was my first step into really going, okay, um, I've almost completely let go of function because they weren't really functional cabinets. Although uh, one of the people that bought, I sold all three of them out of that show. That's, um, that's awesome. And uh, one of the women, a woman who bought one of the cabinets went out of her way to tell me that it was the, it was going to store toilet paper in her oh. in her son's in her son's bathroom. That's oh. going to be perfect for storing. But it's like that's perfect. I mean, you know, it's like it's function, but is it really function? It's storing toilet paper. There's there's some sort of metaphor happening there, isn't there? There's something hmm. happening. Hmm. It means you should do more sculpture. It, it probably means I should do more sculpture, but uh, so that's what you're leaning towards as we're kind of coming up to up to date with stuff you you're doing a lot more sculpture i mean but you know talk about like your your practice now working on winding down a little bit um but your your practice now because you you still do like a you still bang boxes kind of uh yeah i still i still do a little bit of banging boxes i'm getting kind of old for that um but I, you do it i so you can pay for i do it so i can pay for sculpture yeah. i do very little of it actually these days more than anything is uh is uh, i'm putting together ikea boxes for people yeah, but it's you've done a lot of high-end kitchens to help i have done a, i have done a lot of high-end kitchens over the facilitate years facilitate a sculpture jones yeah to facilitate that sculpture jones um i you know i still build a piece of furniture every now and again and amazingly enough i still build one or two of the pieces that I built when I was in Haywood. I yeah, mean, talk it, about that. You just built a, a the, your bridge desk. Yeah, the bridge desk that I built when I was uh, when I was at uh, Haywood Community College. I think I talked about that a little bit when we uh, interviewed uh, Wayne Rabb, our, yeah. our former oh. professor. Episode three or four, I can't remember yeah. which one. I'm not sure which number, but yeah, that yeah. Was... And you know, it's always interesting when you talk to your old your old teachers and and you go over work you did with them because it, it, it's you know it's not entirely you that made that piece i mean he had such a strong influence on on a lot of the choices i made mm -hmm. in in sort of researching and building that piece but no I, I still enjoy building a piece of furniture every now and again but um i'd say i may do almost entirely sculpture 
on my own. I mean, when I'm not doing, you know, when I'm not putting together Ikea cabinets for people <laughs> or, you know, doing stuff that's about money, it's almost purely sculpture. I'm still utterly fascinated by figurative stuff. I mean, I think uh, I've been able to ride that train for quite a while. I mean, it's just amazing all the possibilities that are there in terms of, you know, in terms of line, in terms of form, in terms of shape. I mean, the human body just has it all. Thousands of different gestures. Yeah, and it's just it's just endless, and so it's a it's an endless source of inspiration in terms of where you can go and and what you can do. So I've I've I you know I've done that quite a bit. Um, uh, you know, I just finished a series of pieces that I did with a, a good friend of mine who was a painter. Um, we were in a gallery together over in Durham, North Carolina, Pleiades Gallery, um, Gray Griffin. And okay. I did this whole series of um, faces of the future in which basically they were all, they were the format of a skateboard because the idea came from the skateboard. Oh, right. Um, from that, oh, what's, um, what's the... Asheville artist who does the uh, uh, George Peterson. Yeah, George Peterson. So yeah, originally came from seeing some of George Peterson's pieces in uh, in Blue Spiral and uh, Blue Spiral Gallery in Asheville, North Carolina. But not so much his pieces. But I love the format. I love that You're using I, the skateboards. Yeah, I love the format. So I basically made my own skateboards and carved them. Um, you know, I believe he uses uh, broken skateboards that he actually gets from skateboarders, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, and, and then I, it was just a really fun process where um, I carved these these masks that are, you know, roughly the dimensions of skateboards and look like skateboards. And then I just handed it to my friend Gray and she painted them. Oh, and cool. we didn't talk about the process at all. We didn't. I mean, maybe we should have. <laughs> it was just sort of an interesting, it was an interesting experiment and collaboration where it was just sort of, I do my part, you do your part, and let's just see where the two meet. Um, that sounds fun. So when I came in here today to your studio, you had some some uh, boat or canoe paddles laid out? That seems like the latest thing you're working on. Explain that a little bit. Well, so it was the sort of the next iteration of the of the, you know, of useless things that allude to function, uh, you know, because I'm kind of I, I am interested in that. I did a I, I did a whole set of uh, useless gardening tools. I mean, just playing off of uh, which are on the wall behind us. Yes, They're which awesome. are on the wall of useless garden tools. Uh, a piece I called "You Dig," um, useless implements with which to dig deeper. <laughs> um, I love them. I think they're awesome. So. Um, so you've got the canoe paddles out. So there, I got so. the canoe paddle. So there's a whole tradition in, certainly not in our culture, but in certain Aboriginal cultures of traditional paddles, of canoe paddles. And, and I have always been interested in the artwork of other cultures, just because a lot of, a lot of n functional items are turned into pure artwork you know, based off of, you know, various beliefs and tradition systems. So, I mean, quite frankly, so the faces of the future were all carved, oriented strand board. 
And I did it because I really liked the texture of the material and I liked the look of the material. It's nasty beyond belief to carve. Oh, yeah. It is absolutely hor horrid. It's full of this. Kind of gross. Yes, very gross. Um, so I was looking for the next step in that. And so I've been carving this poplar. It's, t it's called, um, it's torrified poplar. So it's poplar that's been cooked in a kiln so that it changes colors. Um, it changes to sort of a walnuty brown, and it's just a dream to carve. Um, it's fairly inexpensive, and again, so I'm messing around with these canoe paddles, but the canoe paddles are all faces, again. Uh, the, you know, they're... Yeah, they're pretty fun looking. They're, yeah, so I mean, I've just started doing this, but again, you know, it's that whole, this whole going down that figurative path has just been never-ending. I mean, um, there's just so many possibilities, I mean... Maybe next feet and hands. I don't know. Uh, I've done torsos and faces. I, I don't know what's next. But uh. well, we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up here um, and leave it at torsos and faces and future gestures of sculpture. We're here with Eric Walken. It's why make. Yep. Why make. Mm -hmm.